It's Friday. It's Friday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one thing I did forget to mention. Actually. If you haven't seen the last episode, you haven't listened to Rebranding Safety. Um, there, there is it is a reference to what we just said. <laughs> if, if, if people have skipped it, or this is the first episode they've ever listened to, they'd be like, what the actual fuck is going we're, on? We're, we're exploring ditties, we're exploring intro music uh, that's done by the hosts rather than uh, by anything else or anyone else. Um, let us know what your thoughts reply in the comments. Let us know. Let's know. Fucking hearing no Barry's just gone. Oh, I'll be right. My trumpet um, was that bad, it's literally... Killed your, your hearing aid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, one thing I did forget um, to say in the last episode is that the vision is that the Rebound and Safety show will be a live show. How fucking crazy would that be? Look, that would be crazy, if only because then I really have to put my trumpet game. And I don't know <laughs> if I've got it in me, James. I really don't know if I've got it in me. We'll find out. There's only one way. There is only oh, one way. Let's let's do it. I will do a trumpet sound at the beginning of every show. <laughs> Rebounded safety show is here. Hey, <laughs> get that get that applause bit on the road, Mark. Fantastic, absolutely brilliant. I mean, what a way to open what could well be our first episode of twenty twenty four. Yeah, I think this will go out in 2024. Yeah. So, oh, Happy New Year, everybody. Let's, happy New Year. let's go with this is going out in the new year. Let's, let's, let's do it. And let's, let's pretend this has been well scheduled and well planned, and this is going out intentionally in the new year. Okay, let's plan that. So, James, Happy New Year, Happy 2024. What's the title of this episode? Uh, it's called Hang on. Oh, it's a good question, Pete. Um, this will be uh, the first episode of uh, 2024, and it's entitled Economic Growth is Written in Blood. Very true. Now, trumpets aside for a yeah. second, this is something that's pissed me off something chronic. I, I know, mate. You should have seen the WhatsApp. Really happy. Really, I really want very, you to very do voice notes, Pete. I want you to do voice. I want you to get into voice notes because I think if you yesterday were voice noting me your frustration, that would yeah. have been fucking gold dust content. It probably could have done, but uh, then again, it would probably uh, be classed as evidence in some respects. So, <laughs> so <laughs> what I'm going to do instead is now that I've kind of gone away, cooled down a little bit. I'm excited yeah. for us to go into this today. So James, do you want to give us an introduction? What's the plan? Why is the title the way that it is? What are we going to go through? So I'll give you a bit of a context of my... So basically, I was on a train mm. yesterday, and you were texting me, uh, and I won't go into what, what you said. I'll let you kind of go through that. But you were texting me, and I said, this reminds me of a conversation I had with the legendary Sam Neill, um, where we were talking a long time ago, and he put this interesting challenge to the group when we were talking about just how the safety profession seems to be very comfortable with fatal rate fatality rates and like like just like mental health rates musculoskeletal rates like you know, just ill general ill health rates, all of this stuff. And you, you seem to, this line has been broadly flat for the last 20 years. And you're just like, okay, do, do I fucking do anything about it? And it was really nice, just a caveat, and a, not a caveat, little shout out. It was really nice to see Stuart, who has just taken on the mantle of uh, President of IOSH, Day, we this has plagued us for a long time and we need to actually fucking deal with it. Um, he obviously didn't swear because he wouldn't be, never be allowed to swear. Um, but and I commented saying it, that's nice to see, like because I've been fucking moaning about this on rebounding safety for such a long time. However, you can then broaden this out into so many other much bigger issues when we start to talk about the planet, 
and climate change and, and so yeah. much other stuff. And we're especially when we start to talk about big business. So there's lots of stuff we want to try and cover. And we want to try and keep this into 40 minutes, which all the trumpet shit probably didn't help because we've eaten away <laughs> five vital minutes. However, we want to go into that ILO report, the HSE report. We're going to try and touch on electric vehicles, COP28 and modern slavery, all in the context of economic growth is written in blood. Yeah. Because Sam's challenge, when I said too many people are dying at work, his challenge was, is that not just the cost of a big economy, of a successful economy, mm -hmm. e.g., if you were to really simplify that, X amount of hours worked ultimately inevitably results in X amount of injuries or harm or ill health or unfortunate fatalities. Yeah. So statistically speaking... At the time, I didn't like what he said, but it, I have pondered it for about two years. I've thought I've constantly just pondered that challenge. Um, and essentially, there's some weight, there's some, there's some legs in what he's saying. Um, so economic growth written in blood. Yeah, Th this is such a, it's going to be a little bit of a divisive subject, I think, within the safety community. Hell, it might even be a bit controversial, some of the bits that we're going to talk through. Now, I'm going to say something that might be, again, might be a little bit controversial. I think that safety professionals find it abhorrent, the idea that a person can die at work. But as a society, we accept that it's okay for people to die at work in the name of progress, economically, socially, and from kind of a, a technological and societal overall point of view because at some level a switch happens and we just broadly accept that okay it's going to have to happen if we if we as a if we are going to go forwards this just it's just going to be there and it, i mean i appreciate that we're kind of releasing this in the new year we're recording this kind of in, in early december so there's a couple of bits that have kind of just come out hot off the press now some yeah. of this therefore might change as we get into it but let's start with the simple one ilo report right so this is the international labor organization and they said that a safe and healthy working environment is not only a fundamental principle and right at work, but also an essential requirement for fostering sustainable and inclusive economic growth, full and productive employment and decent work for all. I don't think there's anyone that would disagree with that element to say that it is a fundamental principle and right at work that there is a safe and healthy working environment. But I don't know if it's going to be achieved. And I don't know if it can be achieved in the context of a global supply chain in a global economy. Also, it almost feels like aspirational. Yeah, yeah. Also, like, define safe and healthy. Exactly. Exactly. You know I mean? like, like all of this stuff is, is is nice and I get it and I agree with it. Like when, when we challenge it on rebranding safety or when anybody challenges it, I don't think anybody's challenging it to say, no, I want people to fucking die at work. That I think what they're saying is, okay, but what does that actually look like? Like, what is yeah. a safe and healthy workplace? Like, we've got customers that hang in harnesses off the top of steel towers, like freaking hundreds of meters up in the sky. That is not a safe environment. So mm -hmm. is that safe or not? Like, is that a safe and healthy workplace? And there we're just looking at the immediate environment that we're in. But this is something that pisses me off a little bit, I'll be honest with you. You know, we're in this age now of CSR, what feels a bit like virtue signaling with certificates that you can get to say your business is accredited for something corp, potentially, instead, oh, great, cool, that's nice. All right, it focuses on some elements of the present, some elements of commitments that you make into the future. What about all the people that have died along the way what about all the people that have yet to be fully injured by stuff when we look at things like um forever chemicals the clues in the name that they're in the ecosystem they're in our bodies already when we look at things like lead and i'll come back to lead a little later on affecting potentially the cognitive development of kids and adults and just human beings for decades, decades and decades. Microplastics, Christ, we're only getting started on microplastics, Jesus. The, the next asbestos, the next silica dust, microplastics, oh my God. Okay, but it's fine, you've got your accreditation. Good on you, nice one. 
it, it just oh my god it just it feels like the world's biggest virtue signal mm. without necessarily understanding that we're not moving from position of neutrality into positivity with a safe and healthy working environment we're moving from a globe that is literally literally and figuratively on fire at the moment so it can fit i imagine that there's paper straws yeah oh my god tell me about it james it's fine Paper straws going to make a difference. It's just my, like, so I've got a plastics background and a glass background, um, yeah. briefly in, in glass, but I got such a baptism of fire in glass. It was interesting. And there was a point people started talking about glass straws. And, and I remember sitting in the trade association for the glass sector, and, and technically I was glass and glazing, so we didn't cover what glass straws would have sat in they would have sat in the british glass side that is like yeah. ornamental glass and all of that stuff and we sit in this meeting and we were like is that are people actually asking for us they do realize that the carbon footprint of, of manufacturing that glass straw would be astronomically higher than the, than the plastic straw and it's just there's i think one of the fundamental issues we have with this is a lack of critical thinking it, it's like it's a, it's a distinct lack of critical thinking, right? Plastic straws are not a carbon issue. They're a waste issue. So you don't, you, yes, you could eliminate that waste by getting rid of it, but you haven't eliminated. You've just changed the type of waste. So you change it for paper waste, right? So you haven't, you haven't kind of, you haven't fixed the issue. You've just changed the issue. I, I the, get you. The issue I, is the waste issue. I, I hear you. And I want to come back to something that you said at the start there about it's a critical thinking problem. Mm. I agree with you. One example, I think that... I'm not a straw expert or anything like that. So I'm, I'm taking a very layman's over helicopter view of that. But but even kind of being able to position yourself to say, this is my opinion, but here's how it's kind of necessarily unqualified. It's not like I'm asking you for a, to cite your sources as part of no. that, James. So I, 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 I yeah, what I want to say, sorry, interrupted you twice there is a very good book uh, called the plastics paradox uh, okay. plastics paradox by a guy called chris i'm going to slaughter his name and i'm sorry chris uh diamit i think um so he he essentially is he's trying to in his words give the truth that plastics is not the devil it's the kind of smoke screen in a way um interestingly i think it's it's interesting i'm not going to say it's the bible i'm just going to say i think it it makes you think a little bit more critically um, okay link in the profile description where you can find out more about that i think that'd be, okay, be yeah. an interesting one for people to read 100 percent. on on that element of reading different bits getting different perspectives getting different opinions i, I it's god I, I without this turning into a massive rant for a second james we're seeing the decline of the ability to have critical debates over social media, be that, for example, Facebook, be it LinkedIn, be it TikTok, be it Instagram, whatever kind of platforms exist for people to see cognitive diversity in different opinions is declining. And we're seeing more tribalism. We're seeing a lot more people that are set in their ways. It's becoming much harder to kind of have these type of conversations between generations. But time is still pressing on. Time is still ticking over. We're seeing the negative outcomes of actions from decades of either inaction or the wrong action being taken start to manifest themselves through horrendous global outcomes. So there is a huge kind of societal challenge that is there that's very difficult, I think, for safety professionals to reconcile. We are at heart individuals. Together, we create a profession. Together, we create bodies. We are trying to effect change. But by God, it doesn't feel like it's happening quick enough. And on that note, James, can I play a little quiz game with you? Oh, no, I'm, I'm shit at quizzes. Oh, you're going to enjoy this. Right. OK, so we're going to play a very simple game, James, higher or lower. Right. And this oh, yeah. is one that, again, if anyone's listening, you can play with this one as well. And this is related to the HSE statistics. So my question for you, James, 2022 statistics versus 2023. OK, so 2022. 123 workers were killed in work-related accidents, according to Riddle stats. Yep. Is that higher or lower for 2023? Uh, I'm sure I know. I think it's lower. It is higher. 
135. Now, I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourself, James, right? 2023 compared to 2020 statistics. So 2023, 135 workers were killed. 2020 statistics, higher or lower for workers, uh, fatal injuries to workers across the year. 2020. 20, so this is the HC statistics that were released in 2020. So it covers 2019 to 2020. That's, I think that's 110 I'm thinking about. Is that the COVID year? You're very close. So it was 111. That's dropped down. So let's do 2022 to 2023 again as part of this. Um, let's pick out something simple here that's easy for me to explain. Right, okay, so let's go for work-related ill health cases, new or long-standing. It was 1.8 million in 2022. Is it higher or lower for 2023? Higher. The same. Ooh. Okay, so next one for you. Working days lost due, due to work-related ill health and non-fatal workplace injury. 36.8 million in 2021 to 22. Is it higher or lower for 22 to 23? 36.8 million working days lost due to work-related ill health and non-fatal workplace injury. Non-fatal workplace injury. I'm going to go higher again. It's lower. So I'm we're so going from 36.8 to 35.2. James, I'm not keeping score, but our listeners might be. I'm, I think I'm zero, I think I'm over O, as they would say in America. <laughs> right. Let's see if we can give you one last question, James, to help you out with this one. Right. Let's go with let's go with a money one. Let's go with a money one. Right. So bearing in mind, I'll help you out here that working days lost, we've had 1.6 million less working days lost. So, what is is higher or lower? Twenty twenty two or twenty so twenty twenty two statistics or twenty twenty three? Which ones do you reckon is higher or lower for the annual cost of new cases of work related ill health, excluding long latency issues such as cancer? Which one's higher? Which one's higher or lower? So yeah, which which, which ones which, which ones? Well, basically, just go with which one's higher been a long day oh yeah oh yeah. and they go with the two the 22 23 is higher I bet I'm right. yeah you'd be right so it's 13.1 billion versus 11.2 so you are absolutely right i do want to caveat that though because in the 2022 statistics it does refer to 2019 and 20 funnily enough so if, if you bear with me for a sec so the 2022 statistics released by the hsa refer to the annual cost of new cases for 2019 to 2020, and the 2023 statistics refer to the annual cost of new cases for 2021 to 22, which may well include the effects of long COVID, but I don't have that exact information to hand. Yeah, so okay. even though we've had fewer working days in 22 to 23, the statistics say that the number's higher, but it's not necessarily comparing apples to apples as part of that. Right, okay. So a little bit of an unfair question for you, but Bits. still not painting a great picture of significant reductions, basically, yeah. year on year. And I've got the stats from 2020 as well. There was actually 1.6 work-related ill health cases, new or long-standing, in 2019 to 2020. And there's now 1.8 million. So we've gone yeah. up by 200,000 since the 2020 statistics were released. Um, in terms of workers sustaining a non-fatal injury uh, in work, we've gone down by 100,000, which is fine because only 0.6 million people have now sustained a workplace non-fatal injury in the year. And you're kind of thinking, bloody hell, like, what's going on? <laughs> These still feel huge numbers. And, and I know that we've spoken about Vincent in the past as well, who's pointed out that there was 135 workers killed might be a massive under-reporting issue as well. Yeah, the whole story report paints a whole you, different story. You've got an episode with Vincent, don't you, uh, that you've done on this, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, yeah, yeah. It's quite old now. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. It still still potentially counts as part of what we're seeing here. So, again, that would be a good one. To, we can link in the, in the description as part of yeah. this as well, if you want to go check out that episode with Vincent. I mean, it doesn't paint a great picture as part of this, James, and it's quite close to home in the UK. It yeah. really is. What's 
how can we really start to move the needle? How can we really start to reduce these injuries, reduce the amount of money, reduce the burden on the economy? Because we're just seeing the same stuff year on year, seeing the same stuff. There's no easy answer. There's yeah, no, there, there isn't an easy. Let's 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 do it. Let's fight it. Let's let's get the elephant. There's no easy answer. Yeah, and I, and I think the easy thing to say is like, uh, it's not more of the same. Like that would be mm. my. Just please don't do more of the same. Like I, I can just see it now. Like there's some there's some increases in there, and there's, there's and there's some things that people it might get some attention. And I've seen a couple of things that people have put. I haven't seen the report yet. I've not had a chance to sit down and read it, but. I've seen a couple of posts, so okay, maybe it's picking up momentum. Then you've got Stuart talking about it with an Irish. Okay, great. So it's picking up momentum. The response should not be more of the same. Like mm. if it is, then I just don't think we're going to fix this problem. Um, we we I feel like to fix this problem, we have to fix the number problem first, which is our lack of ability to hold ourselves accountable. And every, I have said that once on the podcast and once on LinkedIn. And I got witch hunted both times. <laughs> it, it, we, we cannot, as a safety professional, walk around saying we make people go home safer and I, what I do is stop people dying at work and I make the world a better place. And then when no, if nothing changes, the world's still not a better place, just say that's everybody else's fault and the directors are not listening to us. And it's F, we, we have to take some accountability for this lack of change. Surely you couldn't, you, you wouldn't say anyone, any other profession, if you got like, the I don't know the the stocks and the trades and all of that shit and it, the fucking markets went crash and then the markets go oh you didn't listen to us like we would be witch hunting them. I I get what you're saying. I, I don't know if I agree, James. because oh, it'd be like saying because it because it. it'd be like saying that all of the doctors, the nurses, the GPs should be held accountable for people eating junk food and becoming obese. If if we if we're saying your your that their their job they've their Hippocratic oath that they've taken not, we don't have a, we don't have an oath not held accountable but oh but right okay okay absolutely have some accountability so mm. so maybe I said that wrong you we have to accept some but we have some accountability to be to be self to be self to to, to improve you need to be self critical. To be self-critical, you need to be self-aware. But we have to be self-aware and say, something that we're doing is not working. Then we okay. can be self-critical, then we can improve. I, I get where you're coming from. And I think there are, I agree in the sense that we've got the self-awareness and self-reflection that has to happen to objectively identify when stuff isn't working. Now, we're starting to see more advocacy for doing things in a different way through stuff like, for example, the Stakeholder Alliance, which is between the likes of, I think it's like NEBOSH, uh, IRSM, CIH, IOSH, all coming together being like, right, we're going to challenge the status quo as part of stuff. We're seeing an element of self-awareness come through in collaborative thinking that way. However, where I'm, I I'm saying they're missing, they're, 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 their target audience is missing. It's not in that group. Where's the trade right. associations? Where's where's all of that stuff? I, I, I get you. I get you. And it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out over the year and to see what type of things change. In it's particular, and this is... Sorry. Well, no, no, no. I, I, I get you. I get you because it has to have the insight and the inputs from people at the front line. It does. There is... Again, this might be a little bit, oh God, I'm not trying to say that rebranding safety is going to suddenly turn into a bunch of anarchists, right? As part of what we're trying to do here. But there has to be questions that are raised at kind of a societal level to the government that, that look really looking at how the government has taken things over the last decade or so. It, it's, be, it's, it's been over a decade. How, how are we still having the same type of questions? Who is, who is our body at the government? Like, if I... Oh, if I trade i have my my i pay my trade association to represent me in the government and i i assume that's our professional bodies should do that but who is our representation in the government i don't see any anything from our professional bodies granted i'm not in the big one anymore but 
I I don't see anything on having in my entire career where I've gone, we've gone to government for this or for that, other than very big things. So a good example of that would be the the sunset clause, which, if I'm honest, I didn't agree with. It was nice to see them going to the government, but I didn't agree with why they were going to government. I actually thought our bodies were wrong in that case, but that's aside. I get what you're saying on the whole you said we did. We raised, here's a response. Hmm. It would suck if a, a kind of, let's say that stakeholder alliance go to the government and they get told, no, nah, you're all wrong. We're just going to do the same thing this way. And then the following week, when they get another minister in that's going to do that, sorry, I'm a sex it's probably too political at that point, um, with a merry-go-round of various ministers that we tend to see at the moment. But it is frustrating that with the way, for example, that we're seeing politics set up in the UK, that we don't get a level of consistency. We don't get a level of consistent engagement. We don't get responses that can be built on as sort of foundational elements to change where we are with health and safety in the UK to really kind of make a move outside of this kind of four-year cyclical style of thinking that tends to lend itself to the election cycle. And I think that actually, honestly, James, if we're going to start to see some big changes here with these HSE stats, we need to see some real change at a top level of this country that brings investment into the HSE less as an enforcer but more as an educator, really focusing on helping businesses with their critical thinking outside of safety professional roles to get safety on the agenda in everything outside of safety so that when we come in as safety professionals, we're not being that lone voice. It, it's part of a wider narrative. It fits in to organisational policies, into economic policies. Safety is baked in, not something that you hire someone for when you get past a certain threshold and think, yeah, Jesus, I just I need someone to do all this and do it for me. Mm, I really want to go into that, but I'm very conscious that it's 27 minutes. And I know. I know. So, one. so, um, so can, can I move it on to ask you a couple of questions then? We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll start on uh, something really simple, electric vehicles. Do yeah. you think, James, electric vehicles are the way forward for the world to reduce its carbon footprint, to get people engaging with more sustainable forms of travel? Mm. I know a baited question when I hear one. I, <laughs> I, I'm going to give you a really annoying answer. In the, we're never going to fix the problem if we're looking for one solution. There's a reason why that we put that clip in the beginning of Rerunning Safety and it has never changed. The world is always looking for one solution to solve a problem that's really fucking complex. And it's never going to do it. And the, the environment and the world and the carbon and all of this climate change, that is fucking way more complex than work and people dying at work. And dying at work, we haven't fixed that fucker yet, as we clearly just spoke about. So <clears throat> I don't think... I don't think it will change the world, no. I don't think it will have a, a humongous impact. However, there's part of me that understands the trade-off in that it's kind of like if you're charging an electric vehicle with oil-powered grid lines anyway, then like, yeah. But there is part of me that's kind of like, why would you not do it? Look, it's a baited question, so I'm going to go, yes, Peter, I think it would change the world. <laughs> do you disagree with me? <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate the answer. It, it's not it's not binary. It isn't binary. I agree with you that there's got to be different solutions working together on all of this type of stuff. You know, it might be that we start to see like, for example, hydrogen come in place. We start to see some fuel cell electric vehicles as much as kind of like your, your standard lithium ion based battery tech type stuff. We're standing on the verge, for example, of solid state battery tech that could potentially revolutionize how we start to deal with electric vehicles and the kind of the vehicle infrastructure needs of the UK, of Europe, of the rest of the world, everything from that side. We're on the verge of mass transit, of re-adoption again, where people think actually the cost of car ownership is prohibitive. I need to start looking at trains, buses, different forms of transport, decentralised vehicle ownership, where it's like a car club type of thing. 
And rather than owning a vehicle, you just literally hire one for the sake of a journey, which, for example, works quite well in cities like Vancouver. So there's lots of different options as part of it. But this is going to be kind of a big caveat here. When we're talking about positive things with CSR, with ESG, and everyone saying, yeah, we're going to go to EVs, we're going to change our fleet to biofuel, we're going to do all this and that, we're going to make sure we've measured scope one, scope two, scope three, all that's fine. But I do feel like we missed a trick when it comes down to the very start of the supply chain, especially in third world countries or in places that aren't as economically or society, kind of societally developed as we might find in, say, for example, Western Europe or in the likes yeah. of America or in the East Asia, places like that as well. Yeah. So one thing that's jumped out to me recently was some of the reports that had come out from the Washington Post on cobalt mining. So are you familiar with kind of cobalt mining, but by any chance, James? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, okay. Right, that's fine. So we, we've basically got kind of industrial mining and we've got artisanal mining. Artisanal mining is basically a fancy way of saying it's hand mined, right? So that's mm-hmm. real kind of like proper people stuff getting in there. Yeah. When we look at industrial mining, that's much more uh, kind of mechanized as part yeah. of that. Where we see some horrendous things happening about health and safety can be in places that are developing kind of cobalt mining, be that artisanal, be it industrial. Um, there's a link that we'll put into the uh, recent Washington Post kind of article from August on this, but I'm going to read out a couple of quotes. So after revelations of child labor and treacherous conditions in many cobalt mines, automakers and mineral companies said they would adhere to international safety standards. <laughs> Piss me off reading that. It's after the revelations have come out, after we've found out, after it's been kind of publicly shared, we've we've dealt with it. It's not been dealt with from the outset. And that comes back to kind of the title in some ways of this. Is it being built on blood? I mean, I'll tell you, so, you know, let's look at uh, Congo, right, which is one of the world's biggest, biggest miners of cobalt. Now, there's actually some laws that do protect people when they are injured in work in, in the Congo as part of this. So we did this quote from the same article. All 15 of the injured heavy machine operators who were interviewed said the mine paid for their medical care and spinal operations and kept them on full salaries while they recuperated as required by Congolese law. They all received doctor's note reviewed by the Washington Post saying they could return to work in duties that did not entail heavy lifting or exposure to intense vibration. Sounds pretty good, right? Mm. The next paragraph, instead, they said, the mine let nearly all of them go. <laughs> Without work, most lost their homes. Some saw their families break up. Others had to pull their children out of school. Okay, now. Mad, isn't it? But when we're no, looking as we it, But that's the frustrating thing. That comes back to what we're saying at the start. Hmm. We just kind of accept it's happening, don't we? Because we kind yeah. of understand at some level that where developed countries get the benefits of this type of stuff, they get the end products, we're so far removed from the initial supply chain challenges in health and safety that it's okay. And if it Mm. wasn't okay, I think we would see automakers, we'd see, for example, big mass transit companies doing a lot more to focus on scope one, scope two, scope three, health and safety equivalents down their supply chain as much as they're focusing on carbon like the thing is such a fucking huge problem because if you've got like i suspect you could you could probably trace a story like that for nearly every product and every supply chain nearly like clothing we've seen it in clothing we've seen it in steel like it's absolutely everywhere right so but but the the end the end driver right is that developed countries have you know like i can get on primark and buy a t-shirt for like two pounds and it's just like huh can i can i jump in there on that bit just i mean so leicester for example has had a huge history in the uk of modern slavery issues associated with fast fashion um if i read something that had come out recently about boohoo so boohoo is facing a hundred million pound lawsuit from investors after modern slavery allegations wiped more than a billion pounds from its company values. And this is from a, a, a website that we'll again link in, in the in the description. 
says senior Boohoo directors knew for a fact that there were very serious issues about the treatment of factory workers in Leicester. And while it put in place a program intended to remedy this, it did not move quickly enough. So and, and remember earlier when I said about more of the same, do you know how we're dealing with shit like that is we're forcing the sole trade of bricklayers to have a modern slavery policy. To what end? What? To what, what? end? Uh, the, the question it, it comes, I, I would love to, to hear from big businesses that have got significant PQQ. So that's kind of like a, a qualification questionnaire for procurement or kind of work down the supply chain and say, have you got modern slavery policy? Have you got this and that? that actually then what does their support program look like for suppliers that don't have these? What does the support program look like to enhance and elevate them as part of an auditing process? How, how does that actually fit into it? And as individual safety professionals, I think that we have the capacity to be able to say, actually, if we're quite mature in how we're dealing with safety in our own business, how can we support our supply chain? How can we measure or understand the impact of our materials from a safety point of view and look at supporting and helping them? It's a tricky question to work through, but I reckon that surely there's got to be something there, James. Surely. They've got a question for you, though. Go for it. We started off this by saying we're not doing very well in safety, and now we're saying safety needs to do more in a technically a different risk type james i don't know i'm looking at a lot of these csr policies a lot of these kind of vsg kind of champion bits that are saying we're doing a really good job and if they are doing as good as they're saying surely surely they have the capacity they have the ethical drive to reach down that supply chain from if anything a social obligation and say, here's how we're preventing ill health and injury throughout our supply chain, because we recognize that someone getting a product on their plate, in their homes, from a shop, means that we have the obligation to make sure that it's done safely, if we're going to really be true to our ESG principles. Do you know what what happens though, right? Is that you have your ESG department in this card here, the five of hearts, right? And then you have the king of spades, right, which yeah. is the operations department, right, in a big mm. business. And this department goes, be nice, be nice. And this department goes, be cheap. <laughs> so the trickle-down risk management approach, right, is is you've got trickle-down risk management and then you've got race to the bottom. And it just it ends up just going like this. And they are too far away from each other. And I see it every single day. You've got, we see it in safety and we're just doing more yeah. of the same in other risks. We do trickle down safety whilst uh, that's what the safety team is saying to our customers. Do this, do this as we want you to do it. So what happens is our customer ends up having five different safety management systems because that's the five different ways that all of their customers mm-hmm. want it to be done. And then over here, they have the procurement team and the operations team saying, you're too expensive. You're going to lose that contract unless you go cheaper. And they're like, yeah. fucking hell. It's, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. And the power of these businesses, these big businesses, when they're talking to these small businesses, is unbelievable. It is scary. So whilst I agree But they don't do anything to support it, surely. It's just they just say get it or else. But what do they even do with it, James? What, what, what benefit do the small businesses actually feel when they've actually got – do they feel supported by those big businesses when they say no, we've gone – I don't think they feel supported. I think they feel scared. I think they feel forced to do it. I think they feel, uh, I think they feel like then they're like, I was trying to think of the word, like they're just like, you know, I say jump and you say how high kind of thing. Yeah. Do, do you think this is a big, this is a big brush question, right? For a second, James. And I appreciate through this conversation, I am being, quite facetious about a couple of bits and pieces i get that but it's perhaps for the purpose of this conversation let's look at safe contractor as an exit just as like a just a not like picking on safe contractor specifically but like a safe contractor type of stuff right let's say ssip schemes yeah ssip scheme yeah yeah which is a collective all of them 
a small business completes it yep. because a big business, a big kind of customer has said, you need to have this to get to, to kind of work with us in more detail. Yep. Do you think that the big business is taking the time to explain the reasons and the benefits of having that particular accredited scheme from a safety point of view to the kind of smaller business that would help that smaller business understand the benefits that they could get from living that system or living that accreditation? Not a chance. And, and I'll tell you what, I know that at 2.30 uh, to 3 o'clock today, which is about an hour before, about half an hour before we jumped on our first call today, Peter, um, yeah. I was on a call to a, to a small business, four, um, four, pe- four people in business, director and three employees. And he was talking to me about his kind of big, big commercial customers. And yeah. they rejected some rounds of his. Um, and he said, okay, okay, fair enough. Do you want to just, um, like guide me on what you want to see and like help me through this process? I'm just an electrician and that's his words, not mine, but I'm just an electrician. I don't, I don't know what you're after. And the response from the safety professional was, I'm not going to do your job for you. Hmm. And now the first time I've heard a story like that and it's fucking disgusting. Yeah. I I agree. It proves to me, it proves to me that not everybody, not everybody, like there's a lot of very good safety professionals out there, and most of them listen to Rebound Safety. <laughs> but you, you, there's a lot of good people out there, and I think most people are doing good. And I don't think that lady that that this that guy was saying was was saying to him is a horrible person. I think she's a product of her environment. She probably overworked. She's probably under-resourced in her own business. And now she's got some small contractor saying, write my rams for me. And she ain't going to get no yeah. fucking work and, and no extra money for that. And and it's, so she's not, okay, she's yeah. not, not an evil person, but she's a product of her, her environment. But it's still fucking disgusting. That, that oh, we produce I, I get you. I get you. And I'm not going to say that there are times when it can feel a little predatory, but in that relationship between a kind of small business and their customer but i remember hearing a story over a a particular kind of event where a customer was using an advice line for for health and safety the customer had had a fatality they called the advice line and the person at the other end of the advice line upsold them on additional packages as part of that and it raises a couple of questions over the ethics of what why do we do things why do we want to do things in a certain way why do we want to kind of go forward with mm. safety is it to protect people or is it to enhance the bottom line mm. and actually i think the trade-off of that we shouldn't we mm. shouldn't so we've got to be very careful here and that we don't go too far and then demonize profit at the same time like because I, I was literally in a conversation a few weeks ago where somebody said yeah. to me you shouldn't win an award for being the most influential if you're self-employed because you're doing it to promote your business and i was just like what How, that doesn't make sense how how you're telling me if you win this award, it doesn't it doesn't benefit your career? Mm. Oh, well, no, I don't think it does. And then interestingly, a recruiter was also on, in that call and the recruiter said it fucking does help your career. Yeah. It 100% does help your career. Um, as a recruiter, we would look more favorably on someone that's got this than, than we would at someone that doesn't have it. Um, and and that's, that's, we've got to be really careful here in that we're like... Oh, yeah. We can't. We need to accept that the paywall is a problem, and it is a problem. But then we also need to accept that if someone's trying to run a business, they need to make a profit, and and it's a fine line here, such a fine it is. line. And what what I absolutely love about this, James, is that we've almost gone full circle. We are going to go over a little bit of time with this because there's one more question that I want to ask as well. But before I do, finish at quarter two, so we have right. eleven minutes. I'll make this quick then. So we've gone full circle there from talking about the very big parts of is economic growth built on blood, basically, as part of this. Is it written in blood at a very macro level through to a very kind of small individualistic level? Is Mm. economic growth written in not necessarily blood, but perhaps not going to say questionable ethics, but it's certainly not black and white. Mm. Certainly not black and white. And also, if you if you were to look at 
ethics as a phrase, as a philosophical phrase or a topic or theory or whatever, right? Ethics are personal. So I have my ethics and you have your ethics. There is not a collective yeah. ethics. Well, my James is profit and over everything. Yeah. It, it's it's a really good question. I know we've not got a lot of time to go through it, but it's definitely one that I'd love for us to come back to. I reckon we should get Simon Cassin on to talk mm. about this, do like a kind of a three-way conversation as part of that. I mean, it'd be a hell of an episode to get him on, but it'd be good. There is one last bit that I kind of want to go through, and it's thinking about just more of the societal type of bits for a second. Yeah, I mentioned lead earlier on and said yeah. that I was going to come back to it. Are you familiar or kind of have any sort of engagement with the lead problem in UK pipe work for, for water at the moment. Uh, but but not not into it. With okay, detail. gotcha. So let, let's ask you a quick, quick question for a second then, right? So this is according to environmental information regulations request filed by uh, Spotlight, which was part of a New Statesman article. In the past five years, 130,000 lead pipes have been replaced by water companies. So at the moment across the UK, we've got a significant infrastructure where there's lead pipes remaining. How many lead pipes do you think are left across the country to replace across the UK? Lead pipes. Now, bear in mind, like the lead, just for a quick reference in this, right? is that uh, in America, they're saying in the United States that if the plans that the Biden uh, administration has just put through requiring water utilities to eliminate all lead pipes within the next decade, if that goes through, they reckon it generate $34.8 billion in economic benefits by preventing cognitive and behavioral impairments from lead exposure. So that's in the wow. States, right? $34.8 billion by limiting... <laughs> cognitive and behavioral impairments mad in the united kingdom right we've replaced in five years one hundred thirty thousand. how many more lead pipes do you reckon are left i think it one i'd be surprised if we actually know how many there actually are because i know that i know that the water I, I know that pretty much all underground services are just an absolute labyrinth of we don't know but i'm i'm going to stab a guess at it Hundreds of thousands? Estimated at three million. Three million. Three million, right? Um, as a quick question for you, um, the estimated UK lead pipes replaced and remaining by water companies, what percentage of lead pipes in Seven Trent do you think are estimated as needing replacing? Well, probably hundreds of thousands again. It's 100%. Okay. It's literally yeah. percent, 100% right? of their pipes need replacing. It's estimated as, yeah. Wow. 100%. Do you know what, though? That doesn't me because I, I, bet, I bet for them it's an absolute nightmare to get it done because right. if we've got so, roadwork customers and, and they just can't fix the road, so they're, yep. I've, I've seen the abuse that they get when they oh, fix yeah. the road. You've got society saying, oh. fix my roads. And then don't fix my roads because you've slowed me oh. down. I imagine that's just the same for water. So I get you, right? Let's put this into perspective a little bit of finance behind it. So Yorkshire Water has the largest amount of lead in its network uh, with 1,264,067 pipes based on a 2012 study uh, to be re replaced. In the last five years, they've done 6,608 pipes at a cost of 13.5 million pounds, which roughly works out at about 2,000 pounds per pipe, that would make that total cost over 2 billion pounds in Yorkshire water alone to replace those lead pipes. Wow. 2 billion pounds, right? Which you know sounds- What happens if you replace a plastic pipe and then in 20 years time we have the same thing, but it's like microplastics issue. Microplastics instead, right. So again, this, this fits into the bigger questions about stuff from a societal point of view with health and safety. We're staring down the barrel of significant long-term chronic health impacts from stuff that the safety profession isn't really kind of looking at because it's societal. It sits out of the standard individual wheelhouse of me being either a consultant or working in a single business, I don't deal with water companies, I don't deal with that, but who the hell is, who's advocating for us in what ways 
to make the changes to ensure that the economic growth of our country and our world isn't written in blood. It's not written in the cognitive and behavioral impairments of generations yet to come, as many of those that are still here right now. It is a hell of a question, one that we've run out of time to discuss any further, unfortunately. But I would love to hear people's thoughts on this episode, James. I'd love to hear what they want to do, what they want to see. What do they want from their professional bodies to make the changes, to move the needle in the right direction? Definitely Mm. thoughts on a postcard in a comment. Let us know. Would love to hear it. It's really interesting. I'm trying to find the exact line now before we end the call. I can't fucking find it. Come on, 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 come on. I will, I will, I will find it. I have a particular <laughs> set of skills. Uh, carry on, carry on, making decisions. Ah, making decisions on the basis of individual risk estimates when societal risk is an appropriate measure is one. Mm of the main findings of my favorite paper, Good Practice and Pitfalls in Risk Assessments from 2003. 2003. We were saying we are not considering societal risks. We are too busy focusing on individual risks and forgetting the society. And that's just, that's just talking about risk assessments. Yeah. Yes. Um, I tell you what, James, I am, I'm incensed. I really am, but I'm, I'm, but I'm also inspired by trying to advocate for stuff, by trying to just literally do the right thing, engage with hopefully ways that we can move the needle, that we can kind of come together. I reckon, I reckon that if we can continue shining the spotlight as a profession on some of these societal issues, if we can try and provide some basis of critical thinking, education, growth, opportunities for discussion, platforms for it. I reckon we can start to move the needle quicker than we would do otherwise. And you know what? I'd love to know what people think. All right. What I would like to to discuss on the next episode of Rebranding Safety Show is I'm going to call it Safety Professional. Are you okay? Because Mm -hmm. there's a lot, there's a lot to do. And they've just listened to this and they go, fucking hell, now I've got to think about lead pipes and I've got to think about fucking microplastics and I've got to think about slavery. I can't even keep up with fucking riddle. I can't even keep up with construction. They're probably exhausted, exhausted. Couldn't agree more, mate. I I could not agree more. And I think, I'll be honest with you, we're only scratching the surface. Yeah, we haven't even yeah. put in all the, the the kind of enhancing mental health and emotional EQ stuff that's coming out yeah. as well. Agreed. But Agreed. without wanting to sound like a real pessimist, it is not a time for opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, mate. Uh, I need to go because my wife's literally walking out the door and leaving the child downstairs. So I have to go. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Um, it's you. been a very big topic that we tried to cover in 53 minutes. So we were 13 minutes over our target. But I'll catch you next week. Worth it. See you soon. Take care.